1: Good afternoon and welcome. Joe Biden is now the president of the United States and Kamala Harris is vice president. There was a collective sigh of relief as the inauguration went off without violence, and that was achieved with the help of about 20,000 National Guardsmen deployed following the storming of the Capitol by pro-Trump forces two weeks ago. Biden is promising to unify the country and heal the wounds while trying to deal with the pandemic, which has killed more than 400,000 Americans. It is, at the very least, a very tall order. I'd like to hear from you. What do you think of the fact that there is now another president of the United States? What do you think it'll mean for Canada? And, uh, you know, n- n- no more Twitter. 416-360-0740, toll-free 740, four, seven forty, And now let's bring in Dr. Chris Cooper, Professor and Department Head of Political Science and Public Affairs at Western Carolina University. Dr. Jordan Ragusa, Associate Professor and Associate Chair of the Department of Political Science at the College of Charleston and Seth Weathers, President and Lead Republican Strategist at Weathers Corporation. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Great
2: to be Absolutely. here. Thanks for having us.
1: Let us start with Dr. Cooper. So uh, what's your reaction to the way the inauguration went off?
3: I mean, I think it went off as well as it could, right? I mean, a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on the speech, and you know, I kind of liken these inauguration speeches to a universe, to a like an organization's mission statement, right? Consultants will tell you they're the most important thing in the world. The reality is they don't mean much without action. So I think Joe Biden did everything he could do. It was a good speech. It went off without violence, as you noted at the outset, um, and I think we will see whether he can follow those words with action.
1: Jordan Ragusa, your take?
2: I agree with Dr. Cooper. I mean, Reagan said in 1981 that our inaugurations are uh, normal, but nonetheless a miracle. Uh, And I think that's a good way of encapsulating things. I mean, there's sort of a routineness to these inaugurations. You know, I don't think Joe Biden's speech was remarkable by um, some of the standards of recent speeches. Um, But nonetheless, it was sort of a, a miracle that it came off, you know, not only without violence, um, but given all of the things that the United States is, is facing these days, from um, the pandemic to the threat of political violence uh, and, of course, the current
1: economic conditions. OK, and uh, Seth Weathers, your take.
4: Yeah, I, I, you know, for the most part, I agree with the others. It, uh you know, it's typical of an inauguration. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's essentially going through the motions. And, yeah, they make a lot of promises and, and grand ideals come out of those. But, you know. It's always said there's there's people follow what you do, not what you say, so I think the you know coming months and years is when uh people will uh really decide what they think of the biden administration um but but i'm I'm honestly not surprised about the lack of any violence um there were you know the the troops with all political theater and show, the vast majority of which were walking around with unempty guns, so with empty weapons, so again, it was a very fairly pointless uh maneuver that took place there, and um, but I am obviously happy that it went off without violence, especially that it went off without the level of violence that we saw in 2016 when President Trump uh, came into office.
1: Uh, when you say that the, the troops were there for show, I mean, there was a, a, a very violent riot just two weeks ago, and apparently threats to state capitals.
4: Uh, yes, they're, they're obviously, I've denounced what took place from a very small group of individuals a couple of weeks ago at the Capitol there. Uh, but they had enough troops in D.C. to retake Iraq, uh, you know, four different times. Again, it was a show to try to say, oh, look, the Trumpers are so dangerous. We've had to bring in the biggest show of force in the history of the U.S. in one U.S. city. Again, it was it was political theater more than anything else, which is why they had a bunch of individuals with empty weapons uh, standing around.
1: Uh, Dr. Cooper, do you agree with that?
3: you know not entirely i i mean i'm i'm pleased that it came off as as, as you know the other panelist said he was too without violence at the same time i think if uh, if you're holding an umbrella and, and and it doesn't rain on you that's the point of the umbrella right you don't you don't say we should take away umbrellas so i think the fact that we had that kind of presence that uh, that kind of force um is exactly why we didn't have violence i mean i think we can all agree that we're glad that uh we didn't need uh, perhaps all of that those forces, but I think we don't really know, right? We don't know what would have happened without that level of force. If so people have been able to approach the Capitol in the way they normally would have, could have been a much different scene. So I'm, uh, I'm, I actually feel pretty good about uh, the way the city and the country handled that and the show of force.
1: Jordan Ragusa. Uh, I, I would largely agree with Chris
2: Cooper on this. I mean, the one thing that I would add is that You know, certainly some of it was um, symbolic to have that many troops uh, in D.C. I agree that, you know, that level of a show of force was not necessary to repel any violent protests on the day of Biden's inauguration. But remember that inaugurations are largely symbolic exercises. It is about the peaceful transfer of power. And so I think in some ways the symbolism uh, was important. Um, it, It showed that the United States is committed to the peaceful transfer of power, uh, and that democracy will prevail.
1: Uh, I'd like to give the numbers out again, and people out there, yes, I will get to your calls, uh, so please be a little patient when you call in. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We are talking about yesterday's inauguration of Joe Biden and going forward, what the Americans face, and and of course, we'll get to how does that impact on us here again, 416 360 0740 one 1-866-740-4740. Now, uh, the, the first order of business today is apparently dealing with the pandemic. Uh, and uh, we just heard from Dr. Fauci that the U.S. is rejoining the World Health Organization. Um, what is your view of that, Dr. Cooper?
3: I mean, Expected, right? I mean, I think that this is what we tend to see when when parties change hands in the White House. We tend to see, you know, one president kind of roll back the actions of the previous president. We certainly saw that when Trump took over after eight years of Barack Obama, and I think we're now seeing with Joe Biden, um, you know, kind of a return to a little bit more of what we saw with Obama—repudiation, a bit of the the Trump presidency. I think that is probably one thing that both sides will agree on: is that uh, that the Joe Biden presidency will certainly look a lot more like the Barack Obama presidency than the Donald Trump presidency.
1: You know, here in Canada, uh, we were certainly not surprised that Joe Biden moved to cancel the XL pipeline, but that he would do this as a first order of business. That was pretty shocking to some people, Jordan. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I I think it is shocking. I mean, one thing that um, Biden has done that is potentially different. Uh, than some of his predecessor, predecessors is taking more executive action in the very first day. I mean, what we saw during the Trump years, like the Biden years and like the Bush years, was kind of a slow rollout of undoing some of the executive actions uh, of their predecessors. I think that there's a realization in the Biden administration that there are so many fires to put out um, that there's really not time to roll these things out slowly, that they need to be done quickly uh, to then turn to, Some of the other maybe more um, controversial items, Uh, of course, there's the question about the Senate trial for Donald Trump. Uh, There's H.R. 1, the For the People Act that's going to attempt to address um, voting rights. There's, of course, the COVID relief bill, um, a a nearly $2 trillion package. So I think getting the the easy stuff done very quickly uh, and then potentially moving on to some of the more contentious um, items was was, uh, the point.
1: So I guess canceling the pipeline was the easy stuff, Seth Weathers. Uh,
4: I suppose so. And, you know, the, the the getting back to the World Health WHO, is, you know, from my perspective, looking at that, I don't think that's a positive I, it's, at this point. I mean, they essentially colluded with China to, in, in essence, cover up the reality of what the coronavirus was at that point and lied to the U.S. So why would we continue to give them hundreds of millions and billions of dollars when we can't even expect them to be truthful with us when a worldwide pandemic is in the process of breaking out, which is what happened?
1: Uh, right, but the uh, uh, they do some good work is uh, the explanation for that. Uh, um...
4: I, you know what? If someone does some good work, and I, someone I work with, but they also lie to me while I'm paying them hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, I think I would rather keep that money and manage doing the good work myself, meaning in this case, the U.S. government can use that money ourselves and accomplish many of the same things that the WHO has well, claimed well, to set out to do without worrying about lying to our government about
1: it. Yeah, the U.S. has the worst record uh, in terms of deaths from COVID, so uh, I don't know about the good work there. Dr. Cooper?
4: Well, we, that's not true, though. That's not true. Do you—what What? is— what do you think the numbers are out of China for the record numbers of deaths that took place there? Uh,
1: their, uh, th- their population is a little bigger than yours, and okay, I don't know what the point. real numbers are.
4: Exactly. Uh, my point is, no one knows what the real number is. China is a tyrannical communist regime that kills their own people, okay? They put out... Fa- okay, from what we, we know,
1: you have the worst record. Uh, no, okay,
4: leaving- so my, point, my point is, we don't even know the truth. China lies with misinformation. They're a communist nation. They've lied about the pandemic from the very beginning.
1: Right. That we doesn't no that doesn't change death, your yeah. death toll. That doesn't and, and change and your your I, death I, toll. A, uh, Chris Cooper, can you yeah, respond to sure. that?
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, I'll be happy to jump in. Mm-hmm. I mean, regardless of what the numbers are in China, I think exactly. we can all agree that four hundred thousand people is uh, is 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 too many in the United States, and I think we can all agree that pandemics do not respect country borders, and that the World Health Organization is something that obviously tries to coordinate action across multiple countries and And I think it is a popular move. The fact that Joe Biden would do it so early, I think tries to say that. The United States' uh, current policy on coronavirus has not been working. And so we're going to try to return to something that looks a little bit different. And I think what he's done was consistent with that.
1: Uh, Jordan Ragusa, I mean, the, you know, uh, we here in Canada watched with uh, astonishment at the extent to which the whole coronavirus uh, epidemic, pandemic, became political. Do you see that changing
2: uh, no, I I really don't. I mean, I think some of the causes of, you know, what we generally call polarization in American politics, the deepening divides between Democrats and Republicans, you know, that stuff is so systemic that no one president, you know, no one Congress can simply undo them. And, you know, a lot of political scientists talk about, you know, what would it take to undo polarization uh, in American politics? And we often talk about, like, if aliens came down and, and invaded the world, would Democrats and Republicans get together? And some people think that the answer is no, that um, there would still be finger-pointing and blame that, that goes around, even in that situation. So um, certainly a pandemic is a very bad thing, but it's not on the level of aliens coming down uh, to the world. And so um, I, I'm not surprised by it, and I don't think that it's going to end uh, anytime soon. Uh-
1: Seth Weathers, you're a, a Republican. You've worked for Donald Trump. Uh, uh, what do you think about the very, very divided politics? Do you see any end to it?
4: You know, it, it would be nice. It would be great if everyone could get together and sing kumbaya um, and get along. But just the reality is the parties right now are just, and, and typically are, uh, but even more so now than maybe times in the past, are just the policies are a polar opposite. And so, you know, I think that we can have these debates and conversations and policy issues in a civil manner would be obviously a, uh, a great start. But as to the general polarization, I just I, I don't see us overcoming that uh, due to the, the differences in the policy. And I think that those are things that are going to continue to be fought about here in the U.S. for the next who knows how long, but certainly the next four years. And uh, hopefully it can be done in a civil manner. But I don't I don't uh, I don't see a lot of coming together or unity when, you know, you've got parties doing the exact opposite of what the other wall.
1: Well, uh, I don't know that it's all about policy. Uh, Your divide, people have completely different realities, uh, completely uh, different take on what actually happened. Chris, do you see any healing for that? uh,
3: you know, I, not a lot, and I'll just kind of add to the um, to, to the chorus here on on polarization. Some political scientists and psychologists got together and, and, and wrote a wonky academic paper, but I think has a, a pretty smart takeaway point. They said that it's gotten so bad, essentially, that we need to quit using the word polarization and start calling it sectarianism. The, the notion that we have to create an entirely new vocabulary because the parties don't get along so much anymore, and so. Look, in the the late 1970s in the United States, we tended to have sometimes conservative Democrats. There are a heck of a lot of them. You're talking to three folks from the South, Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. And these were the exact kinds of states where conservative Democrats existed. So you could see some kind of folks coming across the aisle because they might agree on ideology even if they don't kind of play for the same team. But at this point, ideology, whether you're liberal or conservative, and partisanship, whether you are a Democrat or Republican, are the same. We just don't have conservative Democrats or liberal Republicans anymore. And because of that, it is very, very difficult to see without big institutional change that we will make much progress. So I wish I had more positive words to say, but I'll add to the chorus of, uh, of kind of negativity on that point. <laughs>
1: uh, Jordan Ragusa, it seems to me that, you know, biden is nothing if not empathetic is is he going to be kind of the motor in chief Uh, in very stark contrast to donald trump by the way
2: yeah i mean i think that's certainly uh, the way that he is going to pitch himself rhetorically i mean it's, it's really the way that uh he's pitched himself i think throughout his career i mean as long as i can remember um that's kind of been biden's um shtick you know um I heard David Axelrod on CNN the other day um, say something that I think was smart, is that this was not just a, a routine transfer of power, but it was a, a change of attitude, I think was the term that he used. Um, and I think that's right. Um, you know, again, these inaugurals uh, you know, tend to be fairly, uh, the, fairly similar. Um, but one of the things that was really different about Biden's inaugural was his, his pitch that we need to, quote, reject the culture in which facts are manipulated Um, and manufactured. So I think, you know, there's going to be some unity that he's going to try to uh, achieve. You know, like others have said, I don't expect that to go very far. Um, But he will kind of change the tenor um, in Washington and try to refocus on, you know, the things that hopefully we can agree on, which are just basic facts uh, and a commitment to to democracy.
1: Okay, I'm going to take a call from Bill. Hi, Bill. Hi.
2: I thought it was that theater of the uh, observed Uh,
4: Biden was against walls for Mexico, and he was against troops going in to stop the looting and the burning of black people's businesses. But boy, when his ox got gored, what'd they do? Fences around Capitol Hill, how many miles? And then 20,000 troops? So, you know, the walls and the troops aren't good for the common folk, but boy, when it comes to the politicians, it seems like a good thing.
1: Okay, Bill, thanks for that. Uh, again people the number is 416 toll free one 866 740 and uh, we still have some time in this segment. Uh so uh what about going forward uh there's a lot of talk now about the threat of extreme right violence. Uh, is that going to uh, is that is that something very real? I, I know that there's been a big investigation into how that riot in the Capitol happened. Uh, there were reports of threats against many state capitals. We saw a plot against the governor of Michigan a while back. Um, how big a, a a problem is that, Jordan?
2: Well, I mean, I think there's no one simple answer to that question. Uh, I don't think you can simply say yes, it's a big problem, or no, it's not. I mean, if you go back to like 2008, um, the Department of Homeland Security issued a report saying that they were worried about right-wing extremism uh, in the wake of Obama's election, um, and of course, you know, for the first four years at least, you know, we did not see um, a surge in violence uh, as a result. So, I think the reality is is that. You know, violence is probably still far less likely to occur than it is to occur. Um, but, you know, I do think that we have seen an uptick in violence, you know, beginning in 2005. I live in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, and famously, Dylan Roof, you know, shot uh, nine people when they were gathered to, to worship in a church um, right next to where I work at the College of Charleston. You know, you had the the anti-white supremacist that was killed in Charlottesville during um, protests there. You had the Tree of Life Synagogue um, shooting in in Pittsburgh. So it feels like these events, even though they're rare, um, are increasing in magnitude. And so um, I think people, you know, should be vigilant, um, um, even though maybe uh, they shouldn't be fearful uh, outright.
1: Seth, uh, we saw Mitch McConnell blame Trump for the violence on Capitol Hill, and he supported Trump for years. Uh, What do you make of that?
4: Well, you know, for the Republican base, uh, A, they don't like Mitch McConnell. And Mitch McConnell is a point in his career where he is probably not going to ever run for reelection again because of his age, by the time his next term comes to an end. And there's no so love lost between McConnell and Trump. McConnell never liked Trump. He worked with him once he became the president because McConnell was the leader of the Senate. So I think that's no surprise. As as the fears of right-wing violence, the reality is it's almost hilarious to me, that the especially the American media, will sit there and worry. We've, yes, what happened two weeks ago was a terrible riot that took place. But we have regular violence from left-wing um, agitators, whatever you want to call them, in our cities. Especially, We had it, again, last night in Portland. They literally destroyed buildings. That, I mean, they, they have, Portland was, has been under siege for years now, and they've allowed them to get away with it. They've attacked federal buildings. They've shut down uh, federal courthouses for over a month, and it continues every day. And the reality is that we hear only about, oh, we've got to worry about right-wing violence. But again, it's a media narrative. Uh, because we all know where the media stands polit- uh, politically.
1: Well, there were so, people the who said that it was, far, it was it was a Republican narrative that uh, that actually what happened last week was Antifa, and uh, that's been debunked.
4: Okay, That's not what I was talking about. I'm talking about that literally last well, night, Antifa was try- attempting to burn an ice building, broke into it. They broke into multiple buildings and were uh, violent and riotous riotous in the streets as they continue to on a regular basis. There's far more left-wing political violence in the U.S., and all of it's terrible. I oppose all of it. I denounce all of it. I denounce all of that, the burning of our cities that took place over the entire summer, where 30-plus people were killed. I denounce that nonstop, and I also denounce what happened at the Capitol. But the difference is we don't see the same denouncing from the left. They're quiet about it. We could not get Joe Biden to even open his mouth about the political Mm. violence, about the burning and looting that took place the entire summer until late October, when he was nearly forced into it to finally denounce the violence because he was fearful that it was going to hurt his election. uh, Uh, There
1: there was also a big difference in the way uh, those were enforced uh, by police. Jordan, uh, what do you think uh, Trump's influence is going to be in the future? Do you think that uh, he is still going to uh, have a, a, you know, a big hold on the Republican Party or when they figure out who they are?
2: Oh, yeah, I think I think there's no doubt that the Republican Party today is largely uh, Trump's political party. You know, there's talk of um, Laura Trump uh, potentially running uh, for um, office in, in North Carolina. People have talked about, you know, Don Jr., running for office. So I don't think it's necessarily um, Donald Trump um, himself, but the entire Trump family um, seems like they're ready to get into politics. Um, I certainly don't think he's, he's going away. I mean, you know, he's not on Twitter uh, anymore, as you mentioned, but um, he's still got a very large megaphone. Um, and I, yeah, I would not be surprised if he makes a run uh, for president in, in 2024 uh, and maybe announces so, you know, in the, in the coming months
1: chris Cooper what would you like to leave us with on this Donald Trump and uh what happens next? Is it just going to be uh is everything kind of gonna settle down and and get a little boring
3: uh no i would I'd love some boredom. We probably all three would love some boredom, but uh I don't think that's what we're going to see look I mean you know I think we all probably agree that Donald Trump will be a force in the Republican party for years to come and that perhaps more importantly, the Trump brand will. And so I think, yes, Larry Trump perhaps running for U.S. Senate, um, Ivanka Trump perhaps running for, uh, for something in Florida. Um, and even just the specter of that possibility, I think, is going to be a challenge for the Republican Party. So in the same way that I think the Democratic Party um, spent a whole lot of time trying to figure out what their future was after the 2016 election, I think it's going to be a really interesting few years for the Republican Party as they try to, to figure out which direction to go. You know, Is it towards a Mitch McConnell, more institutional, traditional, conservative Republican Party? Or is it a Republican Party that uh, caught fire under Donald Trump? and i don't think anybody knows exactly what it'll look like but the outcome of that will largely
1: determine what
3: happens to the party and what happens to our country
1: uh, and seth weathers where do you think that will land I, I don't believe that trump will actually
4: run for president in 2024 you got to think about his age at that point um and then to go through the whole process again and it'll i would be biden's I, age
1: He'll be uh, Biden's age. Anyway, go ahead. Right, Sorry. It,
4: exactly. And when we see <laughs> <laughs> Biden's been in a basement all year, so we'll see how well he holds up. Uh, but that's my point. I, I don't know that I see him uh, doing it at that age. I think he would rather imply that he may run to in essence, hold that seat or hold that position open to keep others from jumping in until we get closer to the actual uh, primary. And then he will have the ability to essentially be a kingmaker, whether that's a Don Jr., or a governor of Florida like Ron DeSantis, whoever it may be, for him to uh, get behind. But I do believe that the party is going... I, the, just because Trump is not out of, is, is out of office does not mean that the 74 million people that voted for him are not still mad as hell at D.C. and the establishment. And so what I think we're going to see is a lot of challengers in the primaries coming up in 2022 to the more establishment-leaning um, Republicans. And I do believe there's an opportunity that a lot of those will be defeated. And, um, you know, it depends on who the challenger is, but we'll have to find out if they can go on to win a general election. But I do believe that the the base of the Republican Party is going to be more of the America first populism. Um, I guess you could say a, more of a pro-Trump uh, type of base that's going to come into office in 2022.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Seth Weathers, Dr. Chris Cooper and Dr. Jordan Ragusa. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks for having us on.